Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Marta Fanaska, researcher of Japanese and Gender Studies at the University of Manchester, to discuss gender in Japan through dancehall cross-dressing escort services. We discuss issues of applying universal understandings of gender and LGBTQ terminology in a national context, challenge the Euro-American term of escort, and explore how supposedly conservative Japan reconciles with its history of gender fluidity. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Marta. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Good morning, Oliver. Thank you for inviting me. So, first of all, we'd like to start, as we always do, finding out a bit more about you. Uh, can you tell us about your field and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, so speaking about my academic path, uh, I'm a bit of a stereotype. Uh, I was into manga and anime during the high school, which led me to get my BA in Japanese studies. Uh, I got a two-year MA in translation studies, Japanese language, And then I thought that academia was quite my cup of tea. So I went for a PhD in Japanese studies, which I obtained from the University of Manchester. Uh, I am interested in uh, Japanese contemporary culture and subculture, uh, gender performativity, manga, anime, and contemporary Japanese art. And I approach all these areas through a gender studies perspective. Uh, Specifically, my PhD research was focused on the phenomenon of female-to-male cross-dresser known as danzo, and a a specific sector of danzo identities, those working as escorts in contemporary Japan. It is quite funny how I got into this topic because uh, I was in Japan as a research student at the University of Tokyo, and I was trying to improve my spoken Japanese and to find a part-time job to top up my scholarship. And a Japanese friend of mine told me about this cross-dresser escort thing because one of her friends was working for a cross-dresser escort agency. And I thought it was the perfect solution to improve my Japanese and to have an extra income. So my friend introduced me to this girl working as a cross-dresser escort. We talked a lot about the job and I thought, oh wow, this is very cool. So in the end, I did not work for the cross-dresser agency. I just collaborated with them for some special events or promotional shootings. But at that time, I was also choosing the topic for my PhD. So I had a quick review of the scholarship available, and I just realized that no one had been studying this dance phenomenon before, even though it was such a groundbreaking topic with so many aspects to address, like gender performativity, commodification of intimacy. So here I am. I started my PhD and I decided to explore this topic through an ethnographic approach. So I went back to Japan in Tokyo and I worked as a cross-dresser escort myself for nine months. And in this way, I was able to get in touch with both Danso and the clients and to observe the phenomenon as an insider. Wow. So it's been a very hands-on approach. Sounds like you really immerse yourself in your research. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Let's uh, begin by explaining danso to anyone unfamiliar with the term. So danso refers to the practice of a woman dressing as a man, as you've mentioned. Could you explain for us the contemporary context of this practice? Who engages in danso and the various identities it encompasses? 
Yes, so uh, as you said, the word danzo means male clothing and it came to define a woman who cross-dress. The word highlights the first pivotal point in this form of gender transgression. So to embody the male gender, these women modify their aesthetic appearance. So first of all, they dress in a masculine way, they keep their hair short, they use a chest binder, and they also perform with their gestures or the way they speech a male identity. But they do not undertake hormone therapies, uh, nor they resort to surgical modifications. So they modify only the appearance of their bodies, but not the biology. So this is very important because according to my informants, this is what made them different from uh, transgenders or transsexuals identities, which are both labels that Danso uh, refuse. They state they are different. And also when they talk about themselves, uh, they state to behave and look like men, but they never state to be men. And they do not even negate that their body is a female one. Uh, we have different types of danso. Some of them work in danso cafes, which are similar to maid cafe, but with uh, cross-dresser women serving the customers. We have danso cosplayers, but my focus is specifically on danso working as escorts. Uh, in my interviews, my research participants shared in almost all the cases a very similar life trajectory. They went through a tomboy childhood, they felt very uncomfortable when obliged to wear female clothes, and when they were able to start living by themselves, they switched to a full-time presentation of themselves as gender masculine. Uh, this male identity is put aside only in particular occasions. For instance, those who are not out with their families, they come back to their female gender identity during family gatherings. Or another situation in which Danso need to present themselves as women is during job interviews. Uh, this is one of the reasons because my informants decided to start working as cross-dresser escorts. Because in this occupation, they are not only allowed to dress as they like and to present themselves as gender masculine, but they are specifically qualified for the job exactly for this feature. So through the dance escort work, they can express what they define as their real self, their honton ojibun, both during their private life, but also in their working life. Uh, I think I should explain a bit what dance escorting is. So a dance escort company provides clients with the possibility to enjoy a date with a cross-dresser woman. It is necessary to specify that this is not a sexual entertainment, so sex is not an option. What a client can get is company, so it's being with someone who will make his best to deliver the perfect date. Uh, a date usually costs 4,000 yen per hour. I think the exchange rate should be roughly 27 pounds, plus all the expenses which are charged on the customer. During the date, there are almost no limitations to the places to visit with your escort or the activities to do. I mean, you can go and dine out, you can have a stroll in a park, uh, go to an art exhibition. Basically, if it is not illegal or dangerous, and if you can pay for it, then it's fine. So there were also clients, for instance, who paid a very expensive fee to have a weekend out with their favorite escort. 
So during a date, there are some basic rules. So not ask nor offer sexual services, do not take pictures, and generally speaking, all physical contacts other, uh, other than holding hands while walking or parting with a warm hug should be avoided. Uh, as for clients, the service is open to both males and females, but 95% of clients are women in a age range between 21st and 60 plus years old. Uh, clients are not necessarily fujoshi, so women with a strong interest in manga, anime, games, not necessarily. Most of them are working single women, some of them are married, and they are looking for a kind of romantic evasion with an escort, which in their understanding does not count as cheating on their husbands. Uh, dance for clients can occupy a different range of roles. They can perform the role of the perfect boyfriend, the best friend, or a supportive big brother. So the way the relationship can go depends on what a woman is looking for. Most of clients want a boyfriend experience, but others are just in need of a friend who listens to the problems and encourages them. Uh, all the women agreed, the women I interviewed, agreed that whatever the role, Danso are the best partner possible. And this is because Danso, in my clients in four months understanding, mixed together the best of both the male and female genders, embodying the riso taking otoko, so the ideal man every, every woman dream of. So Danso are aesthetically beautiful with delicate features. They are always well-dressed and well-groomed. They are kind and caring, all qualities that Japanese women in my sample say they cannot find in Japanese men. At the very same time, being women, Danso are not perceived as sexually dangerous or violent and abusive as for my clients, informants, uh, so male partners might actually be. And they have this idea that a woman can understand another woman's feeling better than any man. So, Danso uh, are perfect at their eyes. And on the top of that, they are providers of a service. So, clients are paying for this service, for their escorting, which ensure a top quality experience. So, it's a very multifaceted role, I suppose. Uh, one thing that caught my interest when you were describing the rules and the limitations, that uh, I can understand why there's no touching allowed, but why no photographs? Uh, because if you want to take a photo, a picture of your dancer, you have to pay an extra fee. Ah, okay. And it is also meant to avoid that pictures can circulate online. It's a kind of privacy protection. I see. Yeah. Um, so to avoid any presumptions around the gender identity or sexual orientation of dancer, could you explain for us how dancer crossdresses fit into the broader LGBTQ plus community in Japan? So this is a very interesting point, as they basically state to have no connections with the LGBTQ plus community. So we tend to assume that if someone's gender identity, biological sex, and sexual orientation are not heteronormatively aligned, they have a connection with the community. But this does not necessarily hold true in different geographical and sociocultural contexts, I mean, other than the Euro-American one. 
So this is not the case of Danzo. Uh, talking about my research participants, so 15 people, five were self-identified lesbians, but didn't like to use the word lesbian. One self-identified as heterosexual, while the others preferred to not define themselves. Uh, what I witnessed in the case of Danso was an effort to frame their status on a very personal level in terms of individual taste, preferences, and self-expression. And they state that they do not find any connection between their way to express themselves and the advocacy initiatives of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, obviously, I cannot talk for each and every Danso identity in Japan, but according to my sample, they really did not want to be identified with the community and not, they do not want to be identified as lesbians. So the label they choose to define who they are is done so. And they do not even fight to get increased visibility or rights. They do not attend uh, parades such the gay pride. And they also define those belonging to the community as too vocal. So, <laughs> Uh, it's quite funny. Uh, of course, this approach reflects a wider attitude of Japanese people toward activism, which, when contrasting with established institutions or social harmony, we can say, it's not always positively received. And moreover, in Japan, it's still widespread the idea that homosexuality is a personal condition regarding an individual's taste in bed. Mm -hmm. So to state I am gay or I am lesbian do not have, does not have the same political or identitarian meaning that the same statement can have in the UK, for instance. Uh, of course, it is impossible not to think that this perspective can be affected by a negative perception of homosexuality. And in order to avoid the stigma, my informants reduce their situation to a personal condition of likes and dislikes, which does not attract critics. And also because we need to keep in mind that they are working with clients, so they have to avoid all those things that can potentially keep clients away. However, I think it is very important to not project onto them our Western, let pass be the word, thought, uh, so our belief, our ideology and vocabulary when talking about them. So if we apply a Euro-American understanding of their identity, we would be oriented to refer to them using the plural pronouns like they, them, because Danso can be assimilated to non-binary identities. However, this does not really fit to Japan, where it is quite unlikely that someone will use a plural pronoun to talk about itself, don't you think? Mm, yeah. And in the specific case of Danso, they openly asked me to be named using male pronouns, so to not respect their wish and using a non-binary terminology is actually an act of sexual neocolonialism, in my view. So it's a kind of power imposition from the researcher who can run the risk to misrepresent these communities, sticking onto them a global quitting view and label. So in my view, it is fundamental for an ethical and objective representation of queer communities in non-Western contexts to respect local embodiments, uh, even though our understanding or commitment to activism may be leading us to assimilate these minorities into our personal views and battles. 
Very interesting. So to summarize, would you say that the title or role of Bansor, rather than being considered a gender identity, it could be seen as a, a lifestyle or a way of life? So for some of them, it's definitely a lifestyle. Uh, for others, it's not clear. I think they are still looking for a way to define what Danso can represent. My informants, uh, most of them was Danso in two different ways. So they were Danso and they were doing Danso. So Danso articulated their identity as a mode of being and a way of doing. And it was quite complicated. <laughs> Very interesting. So I've done a little research of my own on geisha, which is another aspect of escort work in Japan. And uh, when I discuss this with those unfamiliar with it, the part which is most often met with confusion is the role of an escort in Japan. For example, I have to emphasize that hiring a geisha is not like hiring a prostitute. They're not hired for sex, but for a very particular and expensive kind of companionship. Is this comparable to the role of the dance escorts? where they are being hired for a more nuanced service than we associate with escorts in Euro-America? Uh, yes, definitely. So there are some similarities between the role of both Danso Escort and Geisha, and especially uh, there are similarities between what they provide to their customers. So as you clearly highlighted, both figures are not meant to provide sexual satisfaction. So in the case of Geisha, this might represent a possibility, but it's definitely not their main feature. Yeah. While in the case of Danso, this is actually forbidden by the rules of the company. So clients are asked to sign a contract before the date where it is clearly written what is forbidden and what is allowed. And in my experience, Danso escorts were definitely not willing to provide sexual services. And the role of both Danso and Geisha is of being together with clients, so to offer a pleasant conversation and experience. Uh, in the case of Geisha, they are also skilled artists. This is not the case of Danso, whose main skill is actually uh, their ability to make the customers feel at ease, supported, or even loved. So I think what Geisha or Danso provide can be understood using the Japanese word uh, sabisu, so service. Sabisu is not only to serve a client, but it entails to be ready to satisfy the needs of a client or to anticipate them, so to be attentive, to take care of the smallest details, to make the customer feel spoiled. So there is a strong emotional component in Sabisu which is at the basis of, the, of a kind of a sector of the service industry in Japan. So dance are part of this service industry, like made cafe or a boyfriend or girlfriend for rent, um, which are focused on the emotional well-being of clients. Uh, one of my customer informants described the escort service as yashito akogare, so therapy and longing. And this is what clients were mostly looking for. The position that dance occupy is not that of a pure friendship or love, since the, relation, the relationship is commodified. And the escort becomes a new option, is an halfway between an expert counselor and a best friend who is skilled in listening, provides support, 
and at the same time shows uh, an emotional involvement with the client. So the customer does not feel the pressure of judgment and social expectation as she's paying. And at the same time, she feels pampered and protected in what is seen as a non-threatening emotional experience. So dance so constantly engage in what Harley Hochschild defines as emotional labor, which is the provision of honestly felt or only performed emotions to fulfill the requirements of a job with the final aim of producing a certain feeling or emotional status in the customers. So what dance provide uh, are emotions and what clients want to feel, want to experience is our emotions. So would you say that there is a, a connection between the demand for this particular kind of escort service and the lack of recognition of psychotherapy in Japan? Yeah, I think there is definitely a connection because all these figures occupying a role of companionship also provide or their main feature is to provide emotional support. So they take care of the well-being of the clients in a certain way. So the problem is that they are not specifically trained to do so. But still, there is a clear connection in my, in my view. Mm. Now, Japan is often portrayed as a very conservative conformist nation, but the Edo period between the 17th and 19th centuries prior to modernization was notably fluid in gender roles and sexuality, providing a strong cultural precedent for men dressing as women in both the brothels and on the kabuki stage. Uh, what was the historical precedent for women dressing as men, and how is the wider practice of cross-dressing seen in Japan today? So we actually have different examples of gender fluidity and FTM cross-dressing in Japan, uh, dating back to the Heian period. So for instance, uh, 10th century narrative tales known as monogatari, uh, such as Torikai Baya on Ariake no Wakare, they made of cross-dressing the cornerstone of their plots. And Interestingly, this monogatari involved as characters, also the emperor and other main figures of the imperial court, showing the lack of a stigma towards cross-dressing. I mean, if cross-dressing was something unaccepted, characters such as the emperor would not have been involved in the stories. And similarly, the androgynous aesthetic that we often see in contemporary Japanese idols is an historically established beauty canon for both men and women. So a wasp waist and a flat chest were considered as markers of beauty for both men and women in the Ayan period. Still in the Ayan period and also in the Kamakura period, we also have the Shirabiyoshi. So they were dancers that used to perform at the imperial court dressed as men. So we can say that, especially in the performative arts, cross-dressing in Japan has a very long tradition. And the most known example is the Kabuki Theater, which at the beginning was an all-female dancing troupe. Uh, it turned uh, around 6030 AD into an all-man-based performance because uh, there was a ban posed on women performance in an attempt to stop the connection between this form of Kabuki and female prostitution. But, um, more recently, um, we also have the all-female theater Takarazuka Review, which was founded in 1913 and 
It is based on performances where all the roles are played by women. So women performing female roles are called musumeyaku, while women performing the male roles are called otokoyaku. Uh, still today, this widespread concept of a unisex aesthetic consciousness, which is connected to the Japanese cultural roots, is fundamental, I think, to understand the fascination that cross-dressing individuals may have in Japan. So I think it is not correct to consider cross-dressing in Japan only as a contemporary mode of expression for non-cisgender identities. It can also have this meaning, but not in all the cases. And it is also incorrect to think of cross-dressing individuals as standing for societal upheavals for the strong link of this practice with the Japanese cultural heritage. And as in the case of Danzo Escort, the concurrent distance with the LGBTQ plus community. So I think that the Danzo phenomenon in contemporary Japan should be read within this wider social and historical frame as a recent reinterpretation of an aesthetic sensibility where different layers of cultural tradition, self-expression, negotiation and resistance against stereotyped gender roles overlap and conflate. I see. Now, you've mentioned the term gender performativity already. I'd like to go into that a bit more. Yeah. In her 1990 book, Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, Judith Butler coined the term gender performativity, whereby gender is a performative accomplishment compelled by social sanction and taboo and an identity instituted through a repetition of acts. Can cross-dressing practices like dancehall be seen as an active rebellion against or a satirizing of gender performativity, or is it, is it something more lighthearted, done, done for pleasure and, and entertainment? So, uh, this is a very interesting point. As I was uh, telling you before, uh, one can say, I am a danzo or I do danzo, which is very interesting in defining the identity of these cross-dressers because they are dancing in their private life, so they present themselves as gender masculine in almost their daily interactions, but at the same time, they specifically do dance so for their job. So their identity is articulated uh, at the same time as a way of being and as a mode of doing. And for some of them, the complete identification with the word danzo arrived only after they had started to work as cross-dressers. So after having paired their being cross-dresser with doing cross-dress. So uh, I in, analyzed the dance phenomenon through the Judith Butler's theory of gender performativity. Uh, for Butler, gender behaviors are neither natural nor connected to the sexual identity of an individual. Gender is a repetition of acts with no originals, which are reproduced through patterns conventionally accepted and learned in a certain society as bearer of a specific gendered meaning. So the heteronormative society leads individuals to learn how to perform masculinity and femininity correctly, which basically means in accordance with their sex, reproducing uh, traits of male and female genders uh, proposed as natural and normal in a certain cultural context. But gender is nothing but a continuous performance that individuals do. So dressing in a feminine or masculine fashion, using makeup or not, 
acting and speaking in a certain gender-coded way is presenting ourselves as males or females according to a performance. And the performance is not an expression of gender, but it produces gender. So if gender is real only because it is performed, then we can say that Danso's gender performance is as true and real as the one performed by male-born individuals. So in my informant's view, to be a, a woman means to be kawaii, so to be cute, to speak in high-pitched voice, to dress in a girlish way, or being in a heteronormative relationship, getting married, having children. But these are all aspects that they do not represent who Danso are. So Danso self-recognition within the male category is due to their choice to not perform femininity correctly, according to the presumptions that define femininity in Japan. So Danso diverge from these aspects that the society expects to be compulsory embodied by women, choosing instead to perform a male gender identity which better fits who they are. And then they find a way to express who they are also when they are working. Wow, it's uh, certainly a, an amazing topic to be researching. Thank you for sharing your findings with us, Marta. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to Marta's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Paula Curtis, historian of pre-modern Japan at Yale University, for a topical discussion on digital Japanese studies, considering how moving the field online through incorporating digital methods, tools, and resources can alter its future direction. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.